Hello, and welcome to Mr. Benson's Extraordinarium. On this episode of The Extraordinarium, we have three stories about aviators. Not merely defying gravity, but defying the odds, defying convention, and lastly, defying all logic and reason. Our first tale takes place in the skies over Europe during World War II, and I've titled it The Double Decker Bomber. During World War II, one of the most dangerous places to be was in the air. The average life expectancy of a Hurricane or Spitfire pilot during the Battle of Britain was a mere four weeks. Bomber crew members' chances varied depending upon where they were situated in the plane, but the overall average was one in four would survive the war. Flying over enemy territory, particularly a well-defended city or military installation, could see plane after plane destroyed by flak from anti-aircraft batteries or lost to the strafing of enemy fighter aircraft. Flying over enemy territory was indeed so dangerous that paratroopers actually counted down the minutes until they jumped, at which point they immediately became safer. On New Year's Eve 1944, a group of 37 B-17 Flying Fortresses were returning from a mission which targeted oil refineries in Hamburg. The mission now completed, the remaining aircraft were headed for home through a constant barrage of flak. Flak, for those who are unfamiliar with the term, are targeted mid-air bursts of high explosives fired from ground-based anti-aircraft guns. Several aircraft would be lost, but finally the remaining aircraft would reach the North Sea and escape the barrage, but their ordeal wasn't over yet. Now the crews were watching like hawks for enemy fighters. The planes got back into formation, which gave them better defensive capabilities, but there was a strong headwind that day which slowed momentum and added to the tension. Then their concerns were realised when they were spotted by German fighter pilots flying ME-109s. The attack was relentless and several of the B-17s were shot down, with the survivors repositioning to keep formation. The fighters came in so close, it was said, that the crews of the bombers could see the pilots' faces. Lieutenant Glenn Rojon, captain of the Little Skipper, saw a flash as an explosion hit the aircraft in front of him, and it began to drift, then steadily tilt to its side and fall away toward the sea. Rojon pushed on the throttles and moved into the position the downed aircraft had left and tried to restore the defensive capability of the formation. But unbeknownst to Rojon, the plane below them had just been strafed by an enemy fighter, killing the pilot and the co-pilot. That plane, the Nine Lives, with no one at the controls, began to drift, gradually upwards, until those in the little skipper were shaken by what was clearly a collision. Now, you may have a picture in your mind of twisted metal, wings falling off, explosions and total bedlam. What had actually happened was that the nine lives had crashed into the bottom of the little skipper in almost perfect alignment, with the top gun turret becoming stuck in the belly of the little skipper, forming, for all appearances, 
a double-decker plane, a horrifyingly dangerous position to be in, but offering at least the possibility of time to allow some of the crew to bail out. Rojon and co-pilot Lieutenant William G. Leake, after feeling the collision, noticed the controls had begun to feel heavy. Both men pulled back on the stick, but the planes were rapidly losing altitude. Rojon tried various manoeuvres to try and separate the planes, but they were locked together, and his efforts were to no avail. Trying to make it back to England was not an option, so the decision was made to return to Germany, as bailing out over water was extremely risky for several reasons, including hypothermia. The two men managed to gradually turn the two planes around. All engines, bar one in the bottom plane, were still running, but a fire had broken out, and it was spreading. So Rojon decided to kill the engines in his plane, and fly on the remaining engines in the bottom plane. As the two planes lumbered back into enemy territory, the commander of the aircraft battery ordered his men to cease firing, as he knew the plane was doomed, while civilians watching on wondered what strange new wonder weapon had come to torment them. Six of the crew were able to bail out, and Rojon ordered Leek to bail out too, but he refused, knowing that Rojon alone would not have been able to maintain any semblance of control over the aircraft. As the planes rapidly descended, both men made their peace with God, and in order to give the plane as much lift as possible, put their feet up on the console, and pulled as hard as they were able on the controls. Inevitably, the planes hit the ground. Hard. The nine lives completely disintegrated on impact, with the little skipper finally unshackled from her, it skated on its belly, losing a wing as it clipped a rural outbuilding. The two men had somehow survived. Rojon and Leek clambered out of what was left of the little skipper, with Rojon taking out a cigarette from his pack and was about to light it when a German soldier appeared and ordered him to put his hands up. He snatched the cigarette and pointed to where fuel had been pouring from the wing. Just to think that you could endure an ordeal like that and almost die in a fireball from a lit cigarette. Thanks to their efforts, six men from the Little Skipper and four from the Nine Lives were able to bail out. Rojon was awarded the Flying Cross for his actions, but always credited Leek for saving his life. In 1986, Glenn Rojon was able to track Bill Leek down, and the two were reunited in 1987 along with the remaining survivors at the 100th Bomb Group reunion. Extraordinary men performing extraordinary feats in an extraordinary time. Our second story today is titled The Sugarbird Lady. On the 8th of December 1940, a little girl was born in Subiaco in the city of Perth, Australia. Her parents, Dame Mary Durack, a published writer of note who penned the literary classic Kings in Grass Castles, and father, the aviator Captain Horry Miller, named her Robin Elizabeth Miller. Despite her mother's literary success, her father's founding of Western Australia's seminal domestic airline and the family's pastoral empire of some seven million acres, Robin wasn't spoilt or pretentious and was well-liked, empathetic and charming. She inherited her father's love of flying and took to the air from a very early age. With his help and encouragement, she gained her private pilot's license. 
She hoped to become a commercial pilot, but given 1950s social convention, she wasn't confident that a woman would ever find employment. So she hedged her bets and studied nursing. She was right about not landing a job as a commercial pilot. But after being encouraged by the man that would later become her husband, Dr. Harold Dix, Miller did get her commercial pilot's license, but was turned down even by MMA, despite the fact her own father had been a founding director. It seemed the sensible path of nursing was what lay ahead for her career-wise, until she hit upon an idea. You see, in the 1960s, Western Australia had a lot of isolated communities, something that's still true today. In the 1960s, without satellite communication and the internet and appalling road infrastructure, it was frustratingly difficult to help the residents keep pace with the rest of the country. Even when I was young, school lessons were conducted over shortwave radios by the School of the Air. There was a government program afoot. Its design was to eradicate polio, but the logistics of distributing the vaccine were mind-boggling. This gave Robin Elizabeth Miller, registered nurse and aviatrix, an idea. And so she approached the West Australian Department of Health. To quote her sister, Miss Patsy Millett, she made them an offer they couldn't refuse, as it were. End quote. She would fly the vaccine to the remotest of locations and administer it herself. The vaccine was discovered in 1955, but the logistics meant that in 1966, many remote areas of Western Australia were still at risk. And so, they said yes. She borrowed money, bought a Cessna 182, and set out on her first mission on the 22nd of May, 1967. She would administer some 37,000 doses of the vaccine, covering 43,000 air miles. And as it was an oral vaccine, she would disguise its bitter taste by dripping it onto a sugar cube. Because of this habit, the Aboriginal children gave her a nickname, the Sugarbird Lady. Her hard work and efforts combined with her charm and good nature brought her a lot of attention, resulting in two books, Sugarbird Lady and Flying Nurse. Miller was more than a flying nurse, though. She flew solo from Paris to Perth, ferried planes to Australia from overseas several times, ultimately circumnavigating the globe in stages, and would eventually work for the Royal Flying Doctor Service. She would push her own plane into its hangar and service it herself, and yet remained petite, attractive and feminine. Qualities not lost on one Dr. Harold Dix. Remember him? He was now president of the Royal Flying Doctor Service. In May 1973, she married him and became Robin Miller Dix. The same year, she competed in the United States in the all-female transcontinental air race, somewhat condescendingly named the Powder Puff Derby, finishing sixth. Unfortunately, in 1973, she found a malignant melanoma on her leg. She had it removed post-haste and said to her sister Patsy, quote, If they've got it all, then I'll be all right. But if they haven't, then I've got about two years. Sadly, the cancer had spread, and her assessment was correct. She passed away on the 7th of December 1975, the day before her 35th birthday. Robin Miller, the Sugarbird Lady. Adventurer, humanitarian, pioneer. Down-to-earth yet sophisticated. Hard-working yet glamorous. A truly extraordinary person. The final story for this episode remains to this day a complete 
Mystery. Peter Gibbs was a British fighter pilot. During World War II, he was a member of the RAF's 41 Squadron, flying what at the time was the state-of-the-art Supermarine Spitfire, escorting American bombers, providing air cover during the D-Day landings, and various other highly dangerous missions. Having been released from service at the end of the war, Peter Gibbs would go on to get his private pilot's license and continued his love of flying as a member of the Surrey Flying Club. Gibbs was also a skilled musician and was a member of the London-based Philharmonia Orchestra. That is, until he wasn't. An altercation with the German conductor Herbert von Karajan, while on tour in the US in the 1950s, saw him lose his position in the orchestra. When von Karajan walked off stage without performing an encore during a concert in Boston in 1956, at rehearsals the next day, Gibbs reprimanded the conductor for being so rude. He had originally intended to let it go, but Von Karajan arrived late, which irked everybody, Gibbs especially. Part of Gibbs' rant included the following, quote, I did not spend four years of my life fighting bastards like you to be insulted before our allies as you did last night. End quote. Von Karajan acted as though nothing happened until that night. During the concert, Von Karajan walked off and refused to return to the stage unless Gibbs were immediately sacked. And so Peter Gibbs' career as a musician was no more. Gibbs would, however, go on to start his own property company, which brings us to Christmas Eve 1975. During December 1975, he and his girlfriend Felicity Granger travelled to Scotland to scout for properties to add to his portfolio. They would stay on the Isle of Mull at the Glenforzel Hotel, which had its own private airstrip. David Howard, the Glenforzel's owner, had a Cessna F-150H, and despite Gibbs's license apparently having expired, the ever-charming Gibbs, with sheer force of personality, was able to convince Howard to allow him use of the aircraft to scout for property, which he did for several days. Peter Gibbs's wartime experience had left him with survivor's guilt, which manifested as a penchant for reckless and confrontational behaviour. On Christmas Eve, Gibbs and Granger had a meal in the hotel's restaurant, where several bottles of red wine were consumed, and Gibbs drinking a number of scotches on top of that. At the end of the meal, Gibbs borrowed two flashlights from the hotel staff, gave them to Granger, and asked that she use them to guide him back to the unlit landing strip. Gibbs, it seemed intended to go for a night joy flight. Unable to dissuade the headstrong and inebriated Gibbs from his dangerous plan, the guests congregated outside and listened as the Cessna fired, throttled up, and the sound of the engine faded into the night. As time passed, the increasingly distressed Granger waited to hear the plane return, occasionally shining the torches into the air. But it never did. An extensive search was launched on Christmas Day, but there was no sign of Gibbs or the aircraft. Nothing all that extraordinary there, but what followed certainly was. It was four months later, in April 1976, that a local shepherd named Donald McKinnon would make an astonishing discovery. 
Entangled in the branches of a fallen larch tree was the body of Peter Gibbs. It had not decayed, it had no injuries, it had not been molested by the weather, nor been predated on by animals, with the cause of death eventually being recorded as possible exposure. Question mark. The area where it had been found had already been extensively searched several times. There was no parachute, and no explanation as to how his body could have fallen from a plane, become wedged in a tree without being damaged, and gone completely unnoticed for four months. But a further mystery was added when a decade later, clam divers happened to cross the Cessna, just off the coast of Oban. You see, both cockpit doors were locked. The only opening was a smashed windscreen believed to have happened on impact. People have tried unsatisfactorily to explain the incident, with UFO encounters, international spirings, and all the usual suspects numbering among the attempts. But how a man could escape a locked aircraft without a parachute and be found without physical injury, signs of animal scavenging, or decay in an area extensively and repeatedly searched four months after his disappearance? That remains to this day a mystery. An extraordinary one if you ask me. You've been listening to Mr. Benson's Extraordinarium. Created, researched and hosted by me, Dan Benson. If you enjoyed the show, hit the subscribe button and continue to join me as I uncover extraordinary stories from around the globe and throughout history. Till next time, peace, love, light. Take care. Catch ya.